This episode is brought to you with support from Lyft. Lyft is continuing its leadership in creating a cleaner, healthier, and more equitable future with a bold commitment to reach 100% electric vehicles used on the Lyft platform by 2030. The shift to EVs will create opportunities for drivers to lower costs and keep more of their earnings. Transportation currently accounts for the largest portion of greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S., and so Lyft is committed to leading the way to decarbonize its platform through vehicle electrification. Learn more at liftimpact.com electric. Our hope is in 2021, there will be a vaccine for the pandemic. We know there's never going to be a vaccine for climate change. We, we know is this, it's just going to accelerate. Just the fires will grow, the floods will grow, the tornadoes, the droughts, the transition risks, so that the human cost, um, the economic cost, the financial market cost will grow because there is no vaccine for climate. Financial regulators have a key role to play in addressing the systemic risks presented by climate change. Arguably, it's part of their mandate to safeguard financial markets and the real economy from disruptive shocks. Like the COVID-19 pandemic, climate change has the potential to wreak havoc on asset valuations and economic stability, as well as the lives and livelihoods of millions of people, particularly if these events are poorly managed. As rulemakers, state and federal regulators can take various steps to protect the financial system from potentially devastating climate-related impacts. We discuss the unique role that regulators can play in the fight against climate change in this episode of Ditched, a mini-series on fossil fuels, money flows, and the greening of finance. Brought to you by Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm your host, Julia Piper, a contributing editor at Green Tech Media and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. If you listened to our last episode in the Ditched series with Justin Gway of the Sunrise Project and formerly the Packard Foundation, then you'll know that we ended our conversation on the topic of financial regulations. Justin made the point that new rules are the logical conclusion to where the divestment movement is heading, a logical conclusion to all of the voluntary steps we're seeing financial players take to account for and mitigate the impacts of climate change. But what exactly would those regulatory actions look like? Who is responsible for taking them? What's the upshot here for fossil fuels and how those resources are used? And how does this play politically? While tackling climate change is not an inherently political issue, it's a scientific, human, and financial issue, implementing climate solutions does require political will. Regulators have to decide to use the tools at their disposal, while Congress and the White House may have to step in to establish new directives. The Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act of 2010, a massive piece of financial reform legislation passed in response to the financial crisis of 2008, created a number of new rules to limit financial sector risks and establish new government agencies tasked with overseeing various aspects of the financial system. A decade after the Dodd-Frank Act was put in place, a broad group of investors, businesses, politicians, and nonprofit leaders are now calling on key financial regulatory agencies to heed lessons learned from 2008 and take immediate action to address climate change as a systemic financial risk. 
I talk about all of this in the following interview with Stephen Rothstein, founding managing director of the Series Accelerator for Sustainable Capital Markets, a group that aims to transform the practices and policies that govern capital markets in order to reduce the worst financial impacts of the climate crisis. This marks episode three in the Ditched mini-series. And if you haven't listened to episodes one and two, I highly recommend going back to learn about the origins of the Divest Invest movement from Ellen Dorsey at the Wallace Global Fund, and to get a breakdown from Justin Gway on the voluntary steps that investors, insurance companies, and others are taking to reduce their contributions to climate change and exposure to climate risk. Also, if you haven't yet subscribed to Political Climate, I hope you'll hit the subscribe button now so you can catch all Ditched interviews airing Mondays, as well as our regular Thursday shows. You can stay up to date on all of our content by following Political Climate on Twitter at poly underscore climate, P-O-L-I underscore climate. We're on Instagram with the same handle, and you can find us on Facebook and LinkedIn by simply searching for Political Climate. Now, let's turn to my interview with Stephen Rothstein. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Stephen. So I want to ask you about Siri's role in trying to get the financial sector and capital markets to reevaluate their role in fighting climate change. But just for context, Ceres is a sustainability nonprofit organization, for those who may not know, that's working with some of the most influential investors and companies to build leadership and drive solutions throughout the economy. Your words. Influencing global capital markets is one of the major aspects of your work, and your website notes that, quote, global capital markets are at a crossroads. If energy use patterns and capital market decision making follow the current trajectory, deepening climate change impacts will destroy trillions of dollars of economic value, unraveling financial stability, and the capital markets that the economy depends on. So just to break that down a bit, First of all, what are capital markets? What are you talking about here? Who are you talking about? And why are they at this crossroads? First, thank you for your time and for the invitation today. Capital markets are the financial markets and the people who are influential in the financial markets. That is banks, insurance companies, regulators, legislators. And we're at a crossroads because the UN has said, if we don't make dramatic changes uh, in, our, in our climate diet and what we use uh, in terms of carbon over the next few years, that will reach the point of no return. And that we've already seen in the last years, more floods, more fires, more droughts. We've seen the impact of physical risk and transition risk. So that risk is growing every day and we have to make changes now. And the financial markets, the bankers, financial planners, insurance companies, they're critical actors in this, as well as the regulators that help set the rules for how they operate. So in July, just a few weeks ago from when we're speaking, a series joined with a group of investors with nearly $1 trillion in assets under management, along with other heads of companies, organizations, foundations, etc. And I should note this was actually from uh, members of Congress from both political parties, at least former members of Congress from both political parties. And you sent a letter to the Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell and other leaders in the financial uh, regulatory agencies, and you asked them to take immediate action to address climate change as a systemic financial risk. And you asked them to also follow some recommendations that you laid out in a report. So just give me a little more information on this letter. What did you ask of these players? Sure. It's a great question. So just as background, um, around the world, there are central bankers and regulators like the Securities and Exchange Commission in other countries and 
and, and, and uh, uh, again, in many other places, that they've taken these risks, that there are central bankers in over 60 countries and regulators that have said climate is a systemic risk, and I, as a regulator, need to address it. So we're basically asking regulators to do their job, that they need to think about the risks for the financial stability of our markets and insurance companies and banks. So what are those risks? Pandemic, uh, currency risks, change in management. There's a long list of those, and they think about those. And as we've seen right now, in fact, uh, that our banks and insurance companies are doing relatively well considering the pandemic because of the the work, the work that the banks, insurance companies have done, and the rules that the regulators have put in place dealing with the current situation. Unfortunately, we're not prepared for a risk that's even bigger, and it's going to be many orders of magnitude times the potential impact, and that's climate risk. And we, around the world, other regulators have taken the lead in this area. So this letter, really investors representing over roughly a trillion dollars of assets, as you say, former members of Congress, nonprofit leaders, companies, and others basically wrote to the heads of the federal and state agencies, and there are many of them. At the state level, there's banking and insurance commissioners. At the federal level, it's the Federal Reserve Bank, the FDIC, Securities and Exchange Commission, and many others, and say to them, this is something you have the authority to do today. We don't need legislation to act, but we want you to act today. And if you don't, we know that the risks that we're facing with climate change is going to grow. There are risks. And again, there's trillions of dollars of anticipated risks. Some say between one and four, uh, one and four trillion dollars in risk. We've already seen tens and hundreds of billions of dollars between floods and fires and earthquakes and droughts and other things on that piece of it. So we, the, the letter asked the regulators to do their job, to think about climate as a systemic risk. And then there are a number of very specific steps from that. Yeah, when you say do their job, why isn't this already on their radar? Is it just because climate was never part of these types of financial discussions before? Uh, is it because the public wasn't pressuring these people that you're mentoring, mentioning? Because I mean, I'm sure a lot of people don't even know who their financial regulators are at the state or federal level, maybe at the very top. But I'm just curious, why has this not been baked into their job as you describe it uh, in the past? So unfortunately, unlike many other countries, um, the climate in, in our country has become polarized. And so that unfortunately, like mask wearing and other things that uh, shouldn't be. We should just be following the science and the data on that piece of it, uh, number one. Number two, these are technical issues. Understanding when a bank comes, a bank examiner, how they do risk analysis for banks, it's, it's, it's something that's a little more technical and operational in that area. But we think it's very important. It is important to say, however, that there are great examples of leadership uh, throughout the country. So there are states, uh, the, the uh, insurance commissioners in Washington, New York, and other places, uh, uh, California. So they're doing a great job already within their bailiwick. And then there are individual commissioners at the SEC or governors at the Federal Reserve who have really taken bold leadership already. So there are individuals who are caring about it. There's also many staff in these agencies that within their bailiwick are working on it. 
And there's a you know a lot depends on who the leader is in terms of who the president will be, and depending on the the outcome of the election, the pace of change may move a lot faster, will move a lot faster at the federal level as well. But just as the financial regulators after the last crisis, the 2008-2009, where we had the housing crisis, then we came up with a set of new rules, commonly referred to as Dodd Frank, signed 10 years ago this summer, and those ensure change some of the ways that the banks operate. We believe there needs to be a similar set of new rules focusing on climate, but let's not wait till after the next crisis. Let's do it today before the bad situation with climate gets a lot worse. Yeah. Do you feel like the COVID crisis has really shone a light on this? I know you kind of alluded to that, that climate change will be much worse. Um, but is there also maybe a specific moment now to get this on on regulators' radars because they're thinking about an, a green recovery or just any kind of recovery from the pandemic? So how does the, I guess, the pandemic inform how you're working on this issue? Absolutely, Julia. It, it, it is a unique moment in, in a variety of ways. First is we, we obviously can't um, ignore and need to focus on the people who are in their lives and livelihoods are affected today. And we as society need to do everything we can to help them. And, and I, th- that's important. But while we're doing that, we also need to pre- prepare for the next cycle. And what this has shown is three things. First is what we're in the middle of now, Julia, is a nature-based crisis that has caused, among other things, the m- market calamity, the economic loss, the, 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 the uh, dislocation, people working from home, the unemployment, all those things we all know about. So it, it, it shows what the power of Mother Nature. Second is it shows the power when we, when we don't plan. And we and many other countries, unfortunately, didn't plan properly for this. And some would say we're still not planning properly for that. And so there are issues with the planning process. And third is I think it does open all of us up to being a little more understanding of when the, when the un, unexpected happens, when the proverbial hits a fan, so to speak, and that we have to prepare for those risks more. So my hope is that while in the short term, we help those that are hurt by the pandemic, that it, you know it, we're also uh, preparing for the next crisis in climate and getting ahead of it and putting some of these places, these things in place. If we put these rules and regulations in place now, if banks and insurance companies change, it will first, it'll change the entire economy because every big business, every medium-sized business has a banking relationship and has insurance. So we're, we're really affecting the entire economy, not just the financial sector. And two, will uh, will give us time to make a transition. We, we know that making a crisis, making an immediate transition, like when all we all had to stop working in the office right away, was very hard and very dislocating if we had, if we start today disinvesting from high carbon, uh, high emitting facilities and transition over the next few years uh, quickly, but transition that it'll allow the economy to stay strong while we do that. And there also is great opportunity. I mean, in terms of what's the fastest area of job growth, it is in renewable energy prior to the pandemic. And so this is not just a challenging story. There's also a big opportunity from an investment and job creation perspective. So what would you have 
these financial sector players do? I know you have a report that lays out 50 recommendations aimed at different actors across this landscape. It's called Addressing Climate as a Systemic Risk, a Call to Action for U.S. Financial Regulators. Again, 50 recommendations there. Could you just pull out a few and tell me what you think would have a lot of impact? Sure. Absolutely, Julia. So, and the reason we have 50 is because there are a lot of regulations. It is complicated. You know, H.L. Mencken, the writer and an author, once said, for every complex problem, there's a simple answer that's always wrong. So this is a complex problem. But there are a few uh, key benchmarks to this. The first is to have each agency at the federal and state level identify that climate is a systemic risk. It sounds like a pretty basic thing. But if you say it's a systemic risk, then you'll plan for it. Just as if a year from now, a year ago, if they had all said pandemics are a systemic risk, then they, we would have done more planning. So first is indicate in a very positive and, and constructive way that climate is a systemic risk. The second is that you go through all their operations and say, okay, starting with climate as a systemic risk, we know it's bad and it's going to get worse, then what should we do? that uh, then there are, there are recommendations from how banks get examined and training and stress tests and things like that. So there's a bank supervision. And then the third broad area is disclosure, that um, we as a nation understand what's happening with our companies because there's good financial disclosure, that under longstanding rules, com- public companies have to file financial statements that all have the same format in generally. So we can track that. We don't have the same thing in climate. So we need to have a consistent, mandatory climate disclosure for all medium and large size companies. So if we had the disclosure, this complex web of supervision of the banks and the um, indication and that climate is a systemic risk, those are three pillars. And then there are many other things that we want to go from there. Also, our report, Report, the recommendations in our report can all be done by the regulators, that we do not need legislation. Legislation helps to highlight and accentuate, but that regulators could act today. So we want to learn from, from the mistakes and, uh, and, and the challenges we've had in the past, learn from the risks that we're facing today with the pandemic, and put a set of reforms in place today before climate change gets worse to protect our economy as well as our environment. Got it. So, you know, there's this growing body of work, it seems, that we are tackling in this uh, mini-series for political climate that addresses moving money out of fossil fuels and into climate solutions. Divest, invest, if you will. And it really focuses on the financial sector and really where money is moving. There are a lot of different angles to this, so it's hard to capture in maybe one phrase. But I'm curious, how does this work focused on financial regulators fit into that broader landscape of work on divestment? People may have heard of everything from university campuses pressuring you know, their university funds to get out of fossil fuels to now Chase Bank and others being pressured to stop having you know, money in fossil fuel projects. And now we're talking about the regulatory side where it would kind of change the rules of the game in thinking about, I guess, climate change as a risk. But does that also connect back to this fossil fuel piece and moving money out of it. So can you connect the dots for me on that? Sure. We believe that everybody in the financial sector, the banks, the regulators, the insurance companies, 
have to start this process yesterday. Some have, but m m many have not, unfortunately. And that process is to, to figure out a transition that will get them from a higher carbon using more oil, gas, fossil fuels to a lower carbon, more renewable energy. It may not be practical to do all that overnight, but we have to start now. And we only have a few years to make this transition. And so we have to make, again, we have to, we have to set a clear objective like anything else in life. First, you have to set an objective, then have a plan. You have to have milestones along that plan to be, to be effective. For this, we have to say, okay, we're, we want to, we need to, for the survival literally of our planet, as well as the financial survival of banks, insurance companies, and our, and our capital markets, reduce dramatically the carbon we're using, dramatically. And we have to have a plan to do that. And that is more investments in renewables, electric vehicles, uh, power, uh, clean charging stations, and many, many other things. Look at how what we're doing in forestry and, and, and other areas. Uh, reduce the amount from, from fossil fuel. Right now, I'll just give you an example. Uh, and one of the elements is a, you know, right now we are subsidizing as, as a nation the fossil fuel industry by $600 billion a year because there isn't a carbon tax and because society is paying for those environmental costs and cleanup. So we have to start now to start that transition for cleaning up. We, we can see when, we've, when other countries have made that change already a few years ago, they've already made impacts to reduce their uh, fossil fuel Im, uh, Im, impact. We've done that in the short term, but just because of pandemic, over the long term, we're heading in the wrong direction. And so we have to do that. That's different from saying it may not be practical to invest everything today, but we have to have a plan and work towards a lower fossil fuel impact. And the banks play such a critical role. Some have done that. As one example is, you know, we have roughly 300 less coal plants operating and largely because the economics changed. There is less uh, investments in the Arctic. Uh, and uh, banks have played a, a critical role in that. So we know we can do this, and we have to do it now. We have to start yesterday. When I looked through the executive summary of the report we mentioned earlier, I didn't see fossil fuels mentioned. You know, you talk about climate risks, but is that sort of implied that you want these regulators to also in, you know, factoring climate change into their fundamental decision-making? Does that mean reevaluating how they think about fossil fuel companies and investments. Again, I didn't see that word there. So I'm curious, are you focusing on a different side of this or is that kind of baked into the, the issues and topics you're talking about? Yeah, no, very thoughtful question. Thank you so much, Julia. It, it is fossil fuel, but it's not just fossil fuel companies. So, but just talk about fossil fuel companies for a second. In the last few months, we've seen several companies, BP, Shell, Total, and others, have written down over $45 billion of assets just in the last few months alone. That they, and that's part of the transition risk, that as we're transitioning from more fossil fuel, which we've had, to less fossil fuel and more renewables, some of those won't be economically make sense anymore. So we've seen that. And, and, and so, so that's, a, that's 45 plus billion that some combination of bankers, investors, and insurance companies are not going to get paid back on. Uh, and that's an example of the risk. But we're talking broader than just the fossil fuel companies. It is 
heavy industry that uses fossil fuel. It is the uh, agriculture. It is real estate. It's other industries that affect that. And so every industry has a, is part of our, our economy, um, just as we've seen the interconnection in the, in the pandemic. And so we're saying that the banks and the insurance companies, if they work to reduce it, their, their risk, then that will affect every industry, some more than others, uh, who are more heavily dependent, but it'll affect every industry. So it is fossil fuels, but it's not just those industries. Is there a disconnect there, or at least one step removed? If you ask you know, a financial regulator to consider climate risk, the impacts of climate change, that will happen on one time frame, and the risks are very real. But how do they then calculate that into an immediate regulatory decision related to, say, like you said, um, the fossil fuel use in industry or in agriculture. Those seem to be, we know from the science that these are related, but in some senses, they seem to be disconnected, at least in timeline. So how exactly can a regulator factor that in? Uh, yeah. How would you, how would you answer that? Um, so in the housing crisis that our country faced in 08 and 09, what happened was, it was much more complicated than this, but it's simply that if the banks loan money to high-risk housing, subprime housing, then they had to have a larger reserve margin, uh, more money in the bank, therefore the interest rates were higher, because the risk was higher. And so it wasn't saying they couldn't lend at all to housing, but basically saying if the housing is more risky, they had to have more, the cost of that capital had to reflect that. We're saying... That if, to, that if they risk, if they lend to a fossil fuel company, that they should have a higher reserve, the cost of capital should be higher because it is more risky um, and that with, with a transition as part of that. So that, that we're not suggesting the, that the federal regulator say to the banks, the banks say to a company, you should get out of fossil fuel today, but that they should build it in. We should build in the cost, the environmental cost into the cost of capital and, and we should also build in disclosure so that every company has to disclose their climate input. Canada did this, uh, 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 you know, Canada that's led in many areas. So right now, under the, um, the pandemic recovery that Canada has in place, they've instituted that if a large company gets support from the Canadian government, that they have to share information about their climate exposure. Um, it's called their TCFD uh, report they have to fill out. And so by doing that, that's going to share more information. What's the benefit of that? Then investors, employees, boards of directors, shareholders can all say, hey, company A and company B, one has higher fossil fuel use. That will, I think that's more of a risk. I'm not going to invest in that company anymore. So that'll send positive signals. So imagine now if the cost of the borrowing is higher, if insurance costs are reflected, if shareholders are acting, all of those collectively will send very positive signals after, from the marketplace. And we fundamentally believe in the marketplace, but for the marketplace to work, there has to be good information. So Canada, and that's just one of many countries that have shown leadership in that area, and that we hope that our regulators at the state and federal level do the same. So thinking of this, politically, and I guess not just politically, in terms of how it plays out in the lives of everyday people, you know, if you are, you know, a farmer, or my brother works for 
a tractor company. Um, you know, things that have to do with fossil fuel policy, while not directly in his wheelhouse, affect their businesses. So how do you make this palatable and workable for all the industries that do currently rely on fossil fuels? Because I could see how those interests in the fossil fuel industry related to it would say this is a coordinated attack on our livelihoods. So how do you have these policies roll out in a way that, you know, can work for everyone? Because I would assume that you will get pushback on this. In fact, we know that fossil fuel companies are pressuring the Trump administration over this financing issue and access to capital. It has become a real issue for them. So how do you think about this other side of the coin and the pushback you're going to get, but then also how it's going to work for people who do currently rely on fossil fuels today and will feel it in their pocketbooks when the cost of capital goes up? Mother Nature has shown the power of Mother Nature just with this awful pandemic that we're all facing. Climate change is happening. It is a fact. And the report that we issued that you highlighted has over 200 citations many of them highlighting the statistics. So I won't go through all of them now, but the risks are we could have, if we do nothing, tens of millions of what's called climate refugees, people who can no longer live in their homes or work in their businesses because it's underwater, because of fire, because of floods, because of other nature, natural disasters, that will have people that uh, it'll affect wildlife, it'll affect natural economies, it'll, it'll affect natural ecologies. And we'll also have these transition risks I talked about. So Mother Nature is, is, doesn't care about politics, doesn't care about anyone's job, doesn't care about geography. Um, we've seen that with the pandemic. What we're trying to do is to help your brother, the farmer and others, by giving time to make the transition. We, we as a society have two choices. We can either wait and have the ostrich approach and wait for the crisis to even hit us even more. And then we will react. And some people are going to be hurt a lot more because we're not going to have time to make a transition. Or we can, again, there's great work being done, but we can build on that and accelerate that change today, not tomorrow, literally today we can do that. And then, yeah, build in the price. It will affect people, but it's affecting people now anyway. And then it'll affect people less so that farmers and people in heavy manufacturing and in industry uh, will have a transition time to work through it. You know, I was just reading about a green cement company and the work of, of farmers. So there is so much creative work being done in many sectors of what's called the real economy, but all of that needs time to be absorbed. So we're trying to do it to support all those sectors of the real economy. What do you think is the biggest barrier to this work in the near term? You mentioned there's actions we can take today what do you think is blocking uh, those actions from being taken immediately? I think it's uh, there are a few things. First, it has become too political, um, and so people have a um, uh, 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 it's too political and too partisan. Second is, and it's a, a corollary to this, that uh, not enough people are looking at the science. Let's look at the facts. I mean. You know, there, there are parallels with the pandemic where some people have taken positions because they want to take a position, but it's not based on the facts. Um, so we're just saying, look at the science and look at the facts. Third is that some people believe, oh, if it's not done in this country, it's not being done. But in fact, there are great leaders around the world, central bankers, regulatory officials, 
in Europe, in, as I mentioned, in actually, there's work being done in Canada and in Mexico and in Latin America and other places. Um, and then it's, it's a complicated topic with many facets. So it's a variety of things. Having said that, I am uh, absolutely optimistic. Um, I've seen great leadership by individual regulators. The fact that we had in just a few weeks, so many investors representing over a trillion dollars of assets under management, bipartisan members of former members of Congress and so many others say, we need to make this change. We were overwhelmed with uh, the positive response we've seen to that. We series works with companies every day, some of the largest Fortune 500 companies that you know of, uh, and see their great work in energy purchases and EVs and other things. Investors that are moving their portfolios in positive ways. So we see great leadership, both in the public and the private sector, both at the state and federal level, but not enough for those reasons. We hope that by that this report and many other uh, data points will help to guide the way. And that if there is a different administration, that there'll be broader support starting at the top. Just to do a quick follow-up on this, is there a chance that things go the other way, where financial regulators actually step in on behalf of fossil fuels, again, companies and other related industries, to help shore them up? They do not factor climate change in, at least not in the near term. And so, you know, they want to help shore up these industries, which, you know, there is immediate pain, especially now amid the pandemic and politics are a factor. So there's a tendency to want to help people now in the current system that exists. So do you think this could actually go the other way, where as opposed to taking in climate risks, financial sector actually finds other ways to help this uh, sector of the economy, the fossil fuel industry and others, uh, to support them, um, which would sort of delay your work? Absolutely. And in fact, it's happening um, that right now under the Federal Reserve Bank that has great power and authority, um, and they're, they're using it now during the pandemic, has, has many programs to help different sectors in our economy. But they have one element that's focused on the oil industry and that we think that they have, and we're not the only ones, many other people uh, have, have written and talked about this, that, uh, that, that we've guaranteed hundreds of uh, billions of dollars to loans to oil companies and other companies that are at a very high risk both financially as well as environmentally. And we've argued in this report that um, when the Federal Reserve makes their decisions now, they should A, require climate issues to be disclosed, but they should also think about those risks because these are obligations for the taxpayers. And if an oil company, aside from the environmental cause damage that they can cause, financially, if, if they can't survive the transition, just as some housing companies couldn't during the housing crisis in 2008, that's a bill that the taxpayers are going to have to pay because in terms of the Federal Reserve guarantees. So that it's important both from environmental but also from a, from a financial perspective. So yes, there is risk now. And we're not the only country that there are other countries that have taken these, these steps in a, in a negative way. But there are also, when you look at the recovery efforts around the world, the EU, for example, passed the... the uh, European Union passed a green, uh, recovery program that includes a significant investment in green technology as part of that, as a way to create more jobs. There is a lot of discussion in Congress about an infrastructure, big infrastructure bill. You know, 
I don't know when that'll happen, whether it be this year or early next year, but whenever that happens, the question of, you know, are we rebuilding the roads the way we're building? Are we building more uh, uh, bike lanes in the areas? What about buses? Are we doing charging stations? So uh, how are we, are we, are we solidifying the current trajectory or as we invest literally trillions of dollars that were not in our economy, are we using those to help build a green future that is not just it's good because it's good for the environment, but it'll, it'll create enormous number of jobs and further diversify our economy. So yes, there are, there's a risk of doing some of that now and some of that's happening, but we also think there's signs, what I call green shoots, green opportunities growing. We've seen it in other countries and I hope we'll do it in our country. Uh, this is a perfect example that depending who wins a presidential election, I think that'll have a big impact on what the infrastructure bill uh, looks like. So it sounds like we are really at, you know, a crossroads, as you know, we mentioned at the beginning of this, this conversation. We're facing an enormous challenge today uh, as, a, as a country and the worldwide in terms of the pandemic. It has affected people's lives and livelihoods in untold ways, uh, and it's heartbreaking. And, and our, again, our, our thoughts and prayers go to all those people. And, and, if, and some people say, well, it can't get worse. Well, in fact, climate change would be worse. It would be, it would be bigger. It would be, it would be longer term. And we, our hope is in 2021, there will be a vaccine for the pandemic. We know there's never going to be a vaccine for climate change. We, we know is this, it's just going to accelerate. Just the fires will grow. The floods will grow. The tornadoes, the droughts, the transition risks. So that the human cost, um, the economic cost, the financial market cost will grow because there is no vaccine for climate change that we're, we're seeing all the day. That's why we need our financial regulators at the state and federal level to take action today to understand that climate is a systemic risk, to identify it and put steps in place within their broad authority. Great. Stephen, thanks so much for speaking with me. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time and and thoughtful work and appreciate all the work you're doing on, on this series and others to share so much good information. brings us to the end of episode three in our Ditched mini-series on fossil fuels, money flows, and the greening of finance. You can catch all Ditched episodes on Mondays on the Political Climate Podcast feed, in addition to our regular Thursday episodes. So hit subscribe, come back soon, and thanks as always for listening.